You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Book of Third John is where we're going to be, and today will be very likely will be the last time in our Sunday morning series we call Family Traits, and uh, we'll have maybe a few general messages over the next few weeks until we pick up back up in a regular series. But this morning we'll read Third John like we did last week and focus mostly on verses eleven and twelve. So let's stand together, and we'll get into the reading this morning. Third John. It says in verse 1, The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. And we talked about Gaius last week. I'm not going to rehash it all in detail, but just pay attention to the language, the words that John uses to describe this man Gaius. He says in verse 2, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. That's a prayer of mine, has been my whole life since I've been a dad, that I would hear that my children walk in truth. There's no greater joy than that. Verse 5, Beloved, thou thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. And that was the key verse last week, fellow helpers to the truth. And Gaius was a man that helped the the word of God, the truth, to increase. But this other person that's about to be mentioned did not. It says in verse 9, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words and not content therewith neither doth he himself receive the brethren and forbiddeth them that would and casteth them out of the church beloved beloved follow not that which is evil but that which is good he that doeth good is of god but he that doeth evil hath not seen god demetrius hath good report of all men and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee. But I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee. Our friends salute thee. Greet the friends by name. Tonight we're going to be, or this morning, looking at this passage And with the message in mind, be careful who you follow. Be careful who you follow. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking for your help today. I pray that you would speak to us through your word and remove me from the equation this morning. I need your help, Lord. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts through your word. I pray that you would change us, help us to see where we might need to apply this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. This entire series has been based on the thought that members of the family share similar traits because they're family. And I don't have to prove that point to you. We've talked about it a lot. But you can tell a family member or members of the family based on how they look, how they sound, the way they speak, their height, their hair color, 
their vocabulary, their shared hobbies, their shared likes, etc. You know, I was reminded of this, and I'm reminded of it every week uh, in some ways in my own family. This week, um, in my own son, Jace, I was reminded of the family traits that he picks up from me. Now, I have to say they're, that they're not all good, unfortunately. And I'm not going to talk about one. Well, maybe it could be seen as negative, but maybe not. Jace is my six-year-old son, and he's our only boy. As most of you know, he has four older sisters. So he latches on to anything that daddy does because he looks at the four sisters and his mother, and he says, I'm going over this direction. And I like that. A couple of weeks ago, we went, uh, we were able, we had the privilege of going to the Brazilian Steakhouse here in Sioux Falls and Carnival, and I had talked it up to Jace, of course, because I've convinced him, I'm sorry to all the vegans and vegetarians out there, I've convinced him that meat is the greatest thing God ever invented, okay? So the way it works, if you've never been there, I talked it up to Jace, and I said, they'll bring meat around the entire time that you sit at the table. So they'll give you a little card, and they gave Jace a little card, and if it's on green, then the guys walking around with the meat on the spits, they'll come around and they'll slice you off a piece of meat. As long as it's turned green, they'll bring it by. And his eyes were just big, like, are you serious? So we got there, and there's also a salad bar, which, you know, we skipped at first because, you know, meat. But he's sitting there with the card green, and we're eating, and they're bringing stuff by, and we're turning it over to red when we've got enough, and we want to finish what's on our plate. But I, look, I would look down at the other end of the table, which it's never good when, you're, when your child is sitting at the far end of the table from you, and you can't reach them. Um, he never turned his card off of green the entire night. And I, I mean, I'm not kidding at all. He ate more than I did. He ate and ate and ate, and we thought we were going to have some real issues once we got home, but he has a, apparently a man digestive system as well because it didn't seem to bother him at all. He never turned his card to red. He probably ate more than me. And, and you know what's funny is that his sisters were not nearly as impressed. They just weren't as interested. It didn't seem to make as big of a deal to them or make as big of a difference to them. So it's become kind of a connection between Jace and I, the boys in the family, um, so we talk about Carnival like it's legendary, you know. We talk about the meat we got at Carnival and let the girls do what they're doing, but we're going to talk about meat, okay? So a few days later, we were, uh, Jace came over or came up to the room and he was acting a little pouty about something. And so I asked him what's going on and he said his sisters were kind of doing something and they left him out of it and, uh, and he was feeling a little bit left out about it. And I said, Jace, you let your sisters do their thing. This is good, good parenting advice here. Uh, let your sisters do their thing. Us boys are going to stick together, okay? All we need is you and me. Just Jace and Daddy will be fine, okay? And to which he replied, well, all we need is Daddy and Jace and Carnival and we'll be fine. <laughs> he literally inserted that into the conversation without any prompting from me. The boy wants to be like his daddy, and I'm not complaining. Family traits. You know, the concept of family traits, it, it drives John in all of his letters here, the whole process, even here in Third John. See, John saw Jesus Christ alive. He literally watched Jesus Christ alive and ministering and speaking and moving and, and healing people. So if anybody is an authority on what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ, 
John is the authority. He watched him. It says that his hands touched him, that he, he heard him speak. So he writes a letter to this man, third John, to this man named Gaius, and he begins the letter by commending Gaius while commending, com, uh, sorry, condemning another man named Diotrephes. So you've got kind of two opposing characters here in the book. We don't know much about either of these men or what roles they had in their local church, but we do know they were both influential. They were both affecting the ministry, one good, one bad, but they were the opposites. Gaius was presenting strong evidence as a family member, while Diotrephes was doing the opposite. Uh, He was presenting the opposite of what a family member should look like. And last week I even said, if you could paint a painting, and if you could just visualize what a family member looks like, I think Gaius was the living, breathing embodiment of a follower of God and a member of the family. He's the guy that you would see if you were visualizing somebody that's a real family member that bears the traits. He was loved, he was respected by the Apostle John, and that's high praise. We, we saw last week he's spiritually healthy. John said, thy soul prospereth. So he wasn't just physically there, he was spiritually healthy. He had a heart for those that worked in the full-time ministry. He showed charity to them. And in all that he did for God and others, he was faithful. He walked in truth. He had a great spirit. He helped others and he helped the work of God. John's description of Gaius implies that he's the kind of man who was a fellow helper of the truth, as we saw in verse 8 last week. We could go then to Diotrephes and think everything that Gaius was, Diotrephes was the exact opposite. He had, John had written a letter to, to Diotrephes to the church, and Diotrephes wouldn't even hear it. He had sent people, Diotrephes rejected them. He wanted no part of John's influence or authority. As a matter of fact, he was bad-mouthing John. Uh, he was pr- these prating words, malicious words. He was falsely accusing John. Missionaries would come through. He wouldn't receive them. He would send them out. And if anybody else wanted to help him, he would send them out of the church as well. He kicked people out of the church because they were trying to help servants of God. You could sum up Diotrephes with the phrase that John uses, he loveth to have the preeminence. He has to be first. It has to be all about himself. And in putting himself first above everything else, John's implication in verse 8 again is that Diotrephes was hindering the truth, but Gaius was helping the truth. You have these two opposing characters. He was like the truth goalie, Diotrephes. He was blocking truth from getting in. His pride was like a castle, and he was protecting this little kingdom. He was preventing anything that was helpful to come in and get in. He was, he was keeping all the truth out. He was hindering the work of God. One man's helped, One man helped the work of God. The other hindered it. That's the portrait. That's the description that John is giving us. Gaius does the right things. Diotrephes is doing the wrong things. One is helping. One is hurting. But remember, this letter, though, is written to Gaius. So there's something to be learned from it. And that John is not just writing this letter saying, Gaius, you're a good dude. Uh, Diotrephes, he's a bad dude. Gaius, you're doing things right. Diotrephes is not. No, he wants to teach him something. He has a point to make. And I believe that his point, his application, really starts to come in verse 11 when it says, Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. 
See, John uses that word beloved again. It's a word he's used for Gaius three other times in the letter, and we've already read that. So we know he's, he's addressing him personally once again. And after the use of the ter- term beloved, John shifts his grammar. See, to this point in the letter, there hasn't been any direct instruction given. To this point in the letter, John has simply said, Gaius, this is how you are. These are your traits. This is all the good things that you're doing. Now, here's Diotrephes. He's the opposite. All the bad things that he's doing are hurting the work of God. Gaius, you're doing well. But now he shifts his tone. He shifts his thinking, and he actually shifts to an imperative here, which is a command. See, uh, he says, beloved, follow not that which is evil. And then as implying, he says, but follow that which is good. In context, here's what John is saying, just so we get there together. Gaius, the way you've been living helps the work of God. The way Diotrephes has been living, is he, the way he's been operating, it hurts the work of God. Gaius, beloved, follow. Here's the command, that Greek imperative. Follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. So it starts to become clear in verse 11 what John is hoping to accomplish in this letter. He wants Gaius to be careful about who he follows. I mean, I've done that with my own children plenty of times. You know, on their way out the door, their way to stay at someone's house, or their way to go on an activity. Uh, uh, Very often, I'll stop them and I'll warn them. Now, Now listen, you stay with these people over here. Stay away from that crowd right there. You stay with these kids. You stay with these. These are good influences. And I really think that that's what John is doing to Gaius. He's saying, Gaius, now listen, I've, I've said all these good things about you. I've told you about diatrophies. But listen, it's time for you to understand. Very, in, in a very direct and a commanding way, here's the imperative. Follow not that which is evil. Follow that which is good. He that doeth good is of God. He that doeth evil hath not even seen God. It starts to become clear what John is hoping to accomplish. He wants Gaius to be careful. Be careful about who you follow. Follow that which is good. Don't follow evil. The word follow, and and the word follow is much more than just interest. You know, if you follow somebody on on Twitter or on on social media, if you're going to follow somebody, you just kind of have a passing interest in them. Okay, that's the way, that's how we think of the word follow these days. You just, passing interest, you you check and see what they're doing, or you're creeping, you stalk what they're doing, I don't know. You're following. Well, that's not what follow means here. See, the word follow, is it means to imitate. It means to pattern your life after. So John is saying, uh, Gaius, uh, imitate or follow or pattern your life after those that are doing good. Don't pattern your life. Don't imitate those that are not doing good or those that are doing evil. It's actually, I mean, this, it's like Jason, his daddy. You know, he wants to pattern himself after me. He wants to follow me or imitate me. He's not just interested in being near me. He wants to be like me. That changes everything as a dad. I know that's not my point today. But when you, when you realize it's not that your children are just wanting to be around you or be with you, but they want to be like you and they want to grow up and be like you. Boy, the pressure's on now, isn't it? So John is saying, imitate those who bear the good traits. 
the characteristics that help the work of God. Those are the things that you should be doing. That's the pattern you should be following. Don't imitate the evil of some preeminence-loving man like Diotrephes. Follow that which is good. And then he gives kind of a family trait type of description, which we've seen many other places, when he says, basically, a person that does good is of God. A person that does not do good does not know God. They don't have a relationship with God. And so he's saying you can tell the tree by the fruit. You don't look at an apple tree and think, oh, that's a nice pear tree there. Those are some nice, that's a nice orange tree. No, he, John is very clearly telling him a very simple lesson. If they're doing good, they're of God. If they're doing evil, they don't know God. And I know this is kind of strong language from John, um, but we ought to take note that he doesn't really mince his words here. He says, if their fruit shows, gives evidence that they are good, then they're of God. If not, they're not of God. Gaius, he's saying, you have presented evidence that you're good. Diotrephes, on the other hand, has presented evidence that he's not good, that he's evil. And what he's saying is that one's moral activity, whether good or evil, reveals their spiritual condition. See, our moral activity, our evidence, whether it's good or evil, it reveals our spiritual condition. I've heard a lot of people say, well, yes, they're doing this, but they have a really good heart down inside. Well, no, according to the Bible, um, if the fruit is one thing, it's a revealer of the heart. You don't ever say that somebody's, oh, they're out here, they're doing evil acts or acts of evil, but they have really good intention, they have a good heart. No, according to John and the rest of the Bible, by your fruits you shall know them. I mean, it, it becomes plain to us how a person lives as a revealer of what has taken place on the inside. Good, John, according to John, he says, if they're good, if it's good works, then they're a believer. If they're not good works, he's saying they haven't seen God. I mean, they don't have an idea. They're not really a true believer. Now, in order to drive the point home, John then commends a third individual named Demetrius. So not to be too confusing, but Gaius, who's the, the, the target of the letter, he's the person being written to. Diotrephes is the bad example. And then this third person named Demetrius in verse 12, it says, hath good report of all men and the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. So there's a third person here named Demetrius. Now, we don't know exactly, again, who Demetrius is, but he is very likely, from, from what I've read and from what commentators believe, uh, he very likely is the person delivering the letter from John to Gaius. He's very, he's very likely the person um, in whose hand is the letter from John to Gaius. And we don't know that for sure. He could just be a member of the church um, that John is trying to point Gaius to. We don't know. Uh, all we do know, though, is that John is pointing Gaius to a fine example of someone who does good. And he lists those things in verse 12. He commends him for these three things. He says, first, he hath a good report of all men. So he has a good reputation. And he has a good reputation of, among everybody that knows him. So that's the first thing about Demetrius that John points out. The second, he says, he hath a good report of all men and of the truth itself. And that means that his life matches the truth. So it's not just that everybody's saying, oh yeah, he's a good guy. No, he really actually is a good guy. His life actually does match the truth. What John is saying there is he has a good reputation and he's real. It's sincere. 
It's not put on. He's not just, well, everyone thinks that he's this way, and so they say he's a good guy. No, John says it's actually the truth is a good reporter of him. Basically, John, he had a good report of all men and of the truth itself. So even the truth verifies that Demetrius is real. The third thing he commends him on is he says, we also bear record, and you know that our record is true. So what he's saying is that no man's, car- name, no man's name carried more weight than John. And John is saying, we back him up too. He's saying, everyone thinks he has a good reputation. The truth verifies it. And listen, Gaius, I've watched Demetrius in action. I've seen him, how he lives. I've seen his actions. I've seen his spirit. I've seen how he deals with people. I've seen how he serves God. And I'm telling you, and nobody's name has more authority than John's. He's saying, I'm telling you, we vouch for the character of Demetrius. It's a pretty high praise. Everybody says he's a good guy. The truth says he's a good guy. And John says he's a good guy. So rather than just telling Gaius, imitate good, not evil, he actually gives him the kind of person he wants Gaius to to imitate. He's not just saying, do good, not evil. He says, no, look at this guy. This is the kind of guy that you should be following after. I mean, if he's the one delivering the letter, then Gaius has this example of a person right in front of him. If he's a member of the church, Gaius can look at him and say, that's the kind of person I need to imitate. And let me just stop right here and say that, that every one of us, as much as we need the word of God, and as much as we know to need to know the truth of God, we also, it's good and helpful for us to latch on to some godly examples of people that are real and have a good reputation and live the truth. It's good for us to latch on to that. I don't have any problem with my son. Now, I would have a problem with my son latching on to me if I wasn't doing right. I'm trying to do right. I'm trying to be the best dad that I can be. More importantly than that, I'm trying to be the best follower of Christ I can be. And I know I'm not perfect, but I would love for Jace to grow up and have me be the guy he's trying to be like. I want to be godly. And you should have people in your life that you say, that's the person I'm trying to imitate. You say, well, I don't want to be a follower of men. No, that's not the point at all. You see, even, even Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. If you find somebody that has the character of a man like Demetrius and walks with God and lives the truth and is real about it, latch yourself onto them and follow them. That's what, that's what, that's what John is telling Gaius here. Follow Demetrius. And it's all pretty simple so far. Right? I mean, there's not really much of a twist. It's like, okay, you're, Gaius, you're doing well. Diotrephes is not. Here's Demetrius. Follow him. It's good. But, but as I was reading this or looking at this, I started asking this question. Why does John feel compelled to write the letter to Gaius? I mean, what, what, what prompted it? Because it sounds to me like Gaius is pretty solid. I mean, we could go back and read him, but he's doing right, he's spiritually healthy, he's faithful, he's hospitable, he walks in truth, he has charity or love, he helps those that serve God, he's helping the word of God. I would say, if we're going to say good or evil, follow good, not evil, I would have lumped Gaius' life into the good category, right? I mean, he's over here. I mean, his life is, is follow that which is good. So I'm considering the kind of man that Gaius was, and I'm, so I'm starting to wonder, well, why would John feel it's necessary to command Gaius? And he doesn't just say, I recommend. No, he commands him. An imperative, a Greek imperative. He says, follow, not that which is evil. Follow that which is good. 
Jesus is the man that put himself last. I mean, he put Christ first, he put the needs of others and, and second, and he's last. I mean, he's doing things right. On the other side, diatrophies, and he's not doing things right. He wants the preeminence, he's putting himself first. But here's where, where I think maybe we, we need to kind of read between the lines a little bit here on the why the letter was written. Because yes, Gaius is doing right, and he's doing what he's supposed to, and he's following God, and he's helping the work of God. But over here, you've got this man, Diotrephes, he's not doing right. But listen, if you read uh, about Diotrephes, it becomes pretty evident, he still has a lot of influence. So Gaius is over here doing right, and, and, and he's just trying to follow God and serve God. Over here, Diotrephes, he's not doing things right, but it becomes pretty clear that he has influence. He's all about himself. He's me first. And it sounds like he's having influence because as the people come in that, that John sends, he sends them away. He rejects them. And he even tells the church, if you help him out, you're out of the church. So it's not like Diotrephes is just living in a house up on the hill by himself and not having any influence or, or not affecting anybody. No, he's kicking people out of the church. He's got influence. I mean, he, he, it, if they don't listen, he, they're gone. He's making it all about himself, but, but it doesn't really, honestly, seem to be hurting him that bad. He's building a kingdom. He loves to have the preeminence among them. They're, they're, we know that there are still a them because it's among them, so there's still a group, and they're following diatrophies. And meanwhile, here's the thing. I wonder if Gaius is over here and he's doing good and he's trying to do right and he's trying to follow God, but I wonder if he's laboring alone. And he's looking over at Diotrephes thinking, man, they're surrounding, they're surrounding themselves around Diotrephes or they're hanging out with him and they're following him and it can be easy. It can be easy for us, folks, for God's people trying to do the right thing trying to live right, and, and just trying to follow good and not evil, to look across the aisle at the people who are not doing it the right way, and we start to wonder why things seem to be going so well for them. We're thinking, I mean, he, here's Diotrephes, he's making it all about himself, and he's, and he's telling everybody what to do, and it's me first. Here's Gaius over here, and he's just trying to be humble and serve and follow God. Diotrephes over there, he's got a group of people. They're kind of, they've, they've kind of latched on to him. He's having influence. And he obviously has followers. He has so much influence, he's kicking people out of the church if they don't do what he says. But he just keeps on building his little kingdom like nothing's wrong. No, there's no evidence that things are falling apart yet. He serves himself. He gains influence. He gets attention. He's making an impact. But based on the description that we have of Gaius, I would say he's likely just serving God and others in the background. He doesn't seem like the kind of guy that looks for the preeminence, does he? he, he if Diotrephes is the one kind of out front, Gaius is the one out back. If Diotrephes is the one out in front of people, Gaius is the one that's in the bathroom cleaning the toilets on Saturday mornings, getting ready for church. You see what I mean? There's a difference here in their character. Now, I'm not saying that being in front of people is wrong. I'm just saying that Diotrephes is seeking that. 
Gaius, that's not what he's seeking. And I just wonder if the reason John had to write this letter or felt like he had to write this letter is because he was a little bit concerned about Gaius looking across the aisle and thinking, well, if that's what the result of preeminence is, then maybe I'm doing this wrong. Based on the description of Gaius, he's probably in the background. John, though, wouldn't have felt the need to write this unless he was concerned. He wants to encourage him, right? Saying, follow that which is good. Gaius, keep doing what you're doing. Don't let what somebody else is doing affect the way that you think about this. Because if I'm Gaius and I'm looking at Diotrephes and thinking he's got all the followers and thinking that he's got the preeminence and here I am kind of laboring alone, I might start thinking, am I doing this wrong? Maybe having the preeminence wouldn't be such a bad thing. Think about it, Christian. Think about the way, all the ways that following God seems to cost you sometimes. Think about it. And, and don't be pious and, and don't try to, you know, say, well, you know, it's, there's no cost to me to follow Jesus Christ. I never feel that. And I'm not trying to, to tear anybody down this morning, but we all feel it sometimes. And maybe I'm being too transparent about it, but sometimes it feels, it feels like the cost can be great. And, and we're not even living in a country where they're hiding in, in, a, in a dark room with only a candle around a Bible this morning for fear of persecution. So, I mean, we have first world problems, is, is what I'm saying. But, you know, sometimes when you live for Christ first and you've got people on the other side of the aisle and they're living me first and it seems like things are going pretty well, you start to think, what am I doing wrong? See, Christ first living means you spend... Four to five hours. I'm just going to give you a description of the average church member of Eastside Baptist Church. Christ first living means you spend four to five, four, not 45, four to five hours a week going to church on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday nights, Sunday school too. That doesn't include the drive time, which I would say for most people at our church might be about 20 minutes. For many, it's more than 20. It's 30, 40, 45. We've got some people driving an hour and a half to come to church. So that's another two or two and a half or maybe three hours a week driving here and back. Christ first living comes at a cost. I mean, what could you do with another six hours a week? Just just do what you need to do. Me first living would, would give you a lot more time to work on that project at the house that your wife won't leave you alone about. Hey, that six hours sounds pretty good right now. Maybe you could get more rest or maybe you could get more family time or more downtime. You start thinking about it and you think, well, the me first kind of living, they're getting to do what they want to do and, and I'm, I'm kind of giving a lot to church and you start to think, man, what, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't mind another few hours a week. Maybe I'm the only one that feels this way. Christ first living means your day, your one day off a week is very often spent on ministry stuff. Yeah, you're one day a week if you teach a class. You're studying for your class on your day off, right, Brother Heath and Brother Chad? And those of you that teach in the back, you get a day off a week, and you're just trying to find a time to study for the lesson. So you don't really have a day off. Your day off is spent even serving the Lord. And yet, you, you know, as you leave on Sunday morning thinking, boy, I sure needed to mow the lawn or, or snow blow as we're about to get into that season. I sure did need to do something around the house. And you're watching your neighbors, and they've been home Saturday and Sunday all day, and yet 
you don't really have that kind of time. It starts to feel like it might cost you. A Christ-first life means you give... Uh, the average person in here gives about 10% of their weekly paycheck to the church. It has a tithe, and, and, and most members give on top of that to missions. And by the way, folks, if you're not giving to missions, you should. Invest in the Word of God being spread around the world. Give to the missions program. We even have some that weekly, and this is a good thing too, they give to a building fund, which what I, I would encourage you to give to that as well. Take care of the building, this beautiful place God has given us. Maybe, though, you're out there and you're investing your own money to buy snacks for your Sunday school class. You're out there investing your own money to buy stuff to make crafts or supplies. And meanwhile, your coworker has a brand new truck. And every month they're paying extra on their house because their money is theirs to spend how they choose. I'm, I, I hope I'm not, I'm not over, overselling this or, or saying something that's missing the boat this morning. We feel this sometimes. Christ first living sometimes feels costly. A lot of people marry the concept of Christianity and me first, and, and they give minimally, and it appeases their conscience, but it's not really costing them very much. I don't know that I would call it discipleship. Meanwhile, we're trying to be disciples. It's a life of sacrifice. Christ first means we're compelled to raise our children to a higher standard, and that wears you down sometimes. Right. And it'd be nice to just let our kids do what they want sometimes. sometimes I, I want the kid to throw the fit, the fit at Walmart sometimes. Just let me be, no, maybe not. I don't really want that. But you know, sometimes I look at my kids, and, and I think, man, I'd love to back off uh, occasionally of my teenagers and make, and so that they can maybe act like they like me sometimes. I was always on him about something. I'm telling you. Whether or not you've ever thought about it, when you put Christ first, there's a cost to it. Amen. And we start looking around, and we can look at the, oh, across the aisle, and we see the guy that's living me first, and it's like he's got all the time, and he's got all the, uh, the resources, and he can spend his money how he wants. And the fact that John writes these words means... He's concerned about Gaius, or he's encouraging Gaius to not lose sight of who he's supposed to imitate. Amen. It sure can seem appealing to pattern our lives after the ones who love preeminence. The ones who make it about themselves. They seem to do whatever they want, and everything's good for them. Meanwhile, we labor, sometimes in lonely places, and we're putting the pattern of Christ's life in, in before our eyes, and we're trying to live according to his desires, and sometimes, I'm just saying, sometimes it feels hard. And the me first crowd, they live their way, and, and it seems like they're better off, and we're trying to live Christ's way, and it's a struggle. What we get from John is a principle here. It's echoed throughout Scripture. And that is that God's people must protect their hearts from looking at the way the wicked live and wondering if the choice to follow God is worth it. I think about Psalm 73. Let me just give you some language from Asaph. He says, in verse 3 of Psalm 73, he says, For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here's a man who's trying to serve God, trying to follow God, and he looks and he sees the prosperity of the wicked, and it causes him to be envious. He says in verse 4, their strength is firm. He says they're not in trouble like other men. 
says, their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. Like Jace at Carnival. Just eating and eating. They speak wickedly. They speak loftily. He says in verse 11, Psalm 73, does God even know? How does God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? In verse 12 he says, Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. I'm looking at across the aisle at the me first. He says, Verily, I've cleansed my heart in vain. I've watched my hands in innocency. I don't have any reason to be sad or scared or confess sin when I think about what they're doing. Am I, am I doing this in vain? He says, All the day long I have been plagued. All the day long I've been chastened every morning. And he said, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Asaph basically says, why? Why have I gone to such lengths to follow God when it seems like the me first crowd has it better than I do? But then the whole passage changes when he writes these words. He says in verse 16, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until... Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then understood I their end. See, truth brought everything into perspective for Asaph. He said, I I was feeling like I can't even think about this. But then I went into the house of God and I heard truth. And when I heard truth and I understood their end, then I realized surely God has set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. Does that still sound appealing to you? No. As a dream with one one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Asaph is remembering. See, he's remembering that the end of the wicked doesn't make the way they're living right now worth it. Their end will someday be nothing to be envious of. After he regains the right perspective, then he ends with words like, Thus was my heart grieved. I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holding me with thy right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. So he says, The end of the wicked is destruction. But after my, but at my end, you'll receive me to glory. Are you starting to see how we need to think about following good or following evil? See, it's not just that we're choosing for right now what, what's best. No, we are actually choosing uh, something far later. See, we have a tendency to focus on the now and we ignore the ending. We focus on what's happening in the moment and we forget how it ends up. But listen, the ending is everything. Gaius might have gotten caught up in the apparent success of Diotrephes, but even John says his ending isn't going to be good. In verse 10 he says, Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds. So John says, If I come to you, I will make sure that his deeds get paid for. Now John isn't the Lord, but this is a good reminder of the way it works in real life. See, those that do good, they may not have it as good right now, and it may not seem as appealing right now, but in the end, it's good for them. The ones that are wicked, the ones that seem like they're doing good now, in the end, it's not so good for them. In the end, it gets worse for them. Church, don't get so caught up in what seems great right now that we forget that the ending matters the most.
See, the me-first mentality of the world might appeal right now, but in the end, we lose what matters the most. And in reality, we're choosing when it costs us. Either it costs me now, or it costs me later. I can choose to live the me-first life right now and call my own shots and do what I want to do, but that will guarantee a tough ending when I stand before God in the judgment because I live for myself instead of Him. Or... I can choose to imitate the life of those who follow Christ. And maybe they don't get much attention. And maybe they're always in the background. And and I might even get pushback from my family for following the Lord. But in the end, when I stand before Christ in judgment, having put him first instead of me first, I won't regret anything. See, Folks, we choose when it costs us. And it's either going to cost us now or it'll cost us later. I heard somebody say it this way. There are two pains in life. The pain of discipline and the pain of regret. You either have the pain of discipline or you have the pain of of regret. It's true in dieting. I don't know when to talk about that at Thanksgiving time. But it's true in dieting. See, we either have the pain of discipline in the moment or later on we have the pain of regret. It's true in saving money, isn't it? See, right now the appeal is to go spend it because something's in front of me and I can either have the pain of discipline and say no to myself now or in the end, when the bills are racking up, I have the pain of regret. It's true in using a credit card, isn't it? I can either say no in the moment and endure the pain of discipline in the moment or when those bills are more than I can even handle on a monthly level, um, the pain of regret later on. Do you see how the principle shows up? Shows up in so many ways. And you're better off choosing to follow good today rather than evil because choosing good is the pain of discipline. But choosing to imitate evil is the pain of regret. So that's the application number one. Be careful of choosing to focus on how good the world has it because a life of preeminence always leads to regret. And the second application, and this is short, it's equally important, and that is, folks, be careful who you follow. Be careful who you're imitating. Be careful who you're patterning your life after because the one you're following will lead you to their destination. Have you ever followed someone that didn't know where they were going? I have. And guess who ended up lost? Both of us. We all did. Christian, who are you following? Who are your friends? See, we naturally imitate those we surround ourselves with. So who's influencing you? Who, who do you follow on social media? What are you entertaining yourself with? Or who are you entertaining yourself with? John very clearly says, follow that or imitate that which is good, not that which is evil. But I know a lot of Christian people who spend most of their week entertaining themselves with people that live in an evil way. If we imitate or follow that, we'll end up doing the same things they're doing. What influences you during the week? Which category do most of your influences fall under, good or evil? Do your most common influences lead you toward God or away from Him? John very clearly says, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. If you pattern your life after Jesus Christ, folks, it may be hard today. 
but you won't have any regrets later. The pain of discipline or the pain of regret. John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Who should you follow? Well, follow Jesus Christ. His end is always good. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh into the Father but by me. But if you'll follow Jesus, you'll get to the Father. So who are you following? And Christian, are you looking across the aisle thinking, I wonder if this is really worth it? Let me just tell you, right now it doesn't feel like it, but the end is worth it. You may not regret it, or you may regret the decisions you have to make today, but you won't regret it later. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.